How do we run the race? How do we continue the path of following Christ when we have chosen to follow Christ? How do we live in a society that mocks basic Christian virtues and values? How do we remain faithful in the midst of darkness? And these are questions that the text before us is answering this morning. And put it in the language of John Bunyan is how do we as pilgrims walk faithfully to the celestial city? How do we avoid drowning in the pit of despondency? How do we steer clear of mount legality? How do we just remain sojourners in the vanity fair and not become covenant members? How do we live as Christians waiting for the return of Christ and our inheritance that we will receive in Him? And so would you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, and our text this morning will be through verse 39. And we have been told so far through the book of Hebrews the superiority of Christ and that Christ has sufficiently secured atonement for his elect. And in, intermixed in these wonderful statements of what Christ has secured are warnings that if we should turn away from him, that it would be apostasy and that there's no repentance for those who abandon Christ. So these are very harsh warnings used by God to keep His people on the straightened path and to run that race that is set before them. And these are the means that God uses in giving us warnings to keep us in the race. The previous warning that we looked at last week was possibly the harshest of the five warnings in the book of Hebrews, in which those that will apostatize will only eagerly await the fury of God's judgment. And so following that harsh warning, our text wisely this morning follows the harsh warning with an encouraging word to simply look and recall your faith. Look at when you came to Christ. And this is meant to, to, to stoke revival in the heart of the church and those that would receive this message and help them to persevere in the race that they're in. In other words, this encouragement of looking back upon when we first came to Christ is one of God's means of grace that He uses to encourage us in our perseverance. In other words, as we look back upon uh, our faith and when Christ saved us and our response to that, it is to encourage us to perseverance. And so our text does, gives us three things this morning. The first is we are called to recall our former faith. The second thing is we are to remain resolute in our faith. And then finally, we're given a reminder of our reality we have in Christ. Now this morning, we're just going to look at the first R of the three R's there of recall, resolute, and reminder. Let us hear the word of God. Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. 
and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And this is God's word, and we begin with a call by God himself for us to look back upon the former faith. And the reason they were called to do this is because they were facing struggles and were tempted to walk away from Christ. And so he says recall, and specifically, they're to recall a number of things. And the first is that they were to recall their hard struggles that they had. And and a general statement of what type of struggles were, were, were outlined. They're described. You had sufferings. There was public exposure. Some of you were imprisoned. Some of you had your your property plundered. That is, thieves took your property. That's just a general statement, a general overview of what they had already faced and what they were looking at facing once again, possibly in their their future. And since they had already encountered sufferings, they had already experienced public suffering, imprisonment, beating, and and their their property being taken from them, they've experienced those hardships, those hard struggles. As they look at the possibility of facing that once again, they're beginning to shrink back in fear because they don't want to face that again. And so he says, recall, and this is not simply, just remember back on those memories, because how could you forget those memories? We don't tend to forget intense tragedies that take place in our life, so how could they forget? But the specific point is that they are called to rekindle what they had when they first came to Christ. In other words, this is meant to stir up that zeal that usually accompanies conversion when a person comes to Christ. And so he's calling them to this specific thing. Recall or remember how it is that you dealt with adversity. Recall how it is that you dealt with struggles and hardships. Think back on how you got through that. Remember how it is that Christ, in His grace, got you through those difficulties in your life. If you're thinking about moving away, just look back. Remember, Christ got you through it before, and He'll get you through this next season. That's what he's calling them to do, is to think back. And he says, remember your struggles. And that word struggles is, a, is an athletic term. And so you can think of the, 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 the imagery that is being brought forth. It pictures the difficulty and the striving that one would face in an athletic contest. And it came with, we're told, with sufferings. 
And so this intense difficulty came with pain. The struggle is also described as being hard, which sometimes is translated as much or many. And this is accompanied with suffering. So there was much or great suffering that came with these struggles that they had. And we have to admit that that could be perplexing for a new Christian. Or it could be perplexing for a Christian that becomes a Christian, endures hard struggles, gets through it, and then is facing hard struggles once again and wondering, why am I going through these things? Has God abandoned me? Has Christ abandoned me? If you read the Psalms, you will continually see the psalmist saying out, Why, Lord, or how long, Lord? It's because when we deal with life, we're dealing with the struggles of life. And it begins to weigh down upon a person. And that's exactly what's taking place with these Hebrews, is that the struggles they had faced and the struggles that they're likely to face in the future are beginning to weigh them down and they're beginning to look away from Christ because they see Christ as the cause of their pain. Now notice what it says. This, this happened after you were enlightened. You know, Perhaps one comes to Christ and thinks life will get easier. In fact, that's sometimes how Christ is shared with people, that things will get easier. But that's not their experience. It's the opposite. And if you're in Christ, that, that could possibly be your experience as well. In fact, here, what we see for these Hebrews and in this first century church was that resting in Christ, that receiving Christ, that accepting Christ, is actually what led to their difficulties. Is because they bore the name of Christ. And that was the very association with Christ and the Christian people was the root and cause of their struggles because it was their identity with Christ that led to their persecution. And so these were faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord, which is why many of them were beginning to question their initial commitment to Christ. I think we need to reflect on the words that the Apostle uses here as a help on what exactly we're called to recall. What were these Hebrews specifically called to recall or to remember? Notice what it says, after they were enlightened. So this is speaking of an enlightenment that had taken place with them. It's passive. We don't enlighten ourselves, but it's something supernaturally that happens to the Christian outside of the Christian, to be enlightened. You think of how Peter says this, where Peter says, we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so it's this idea of being called out of something that we were. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And so this idea of being enlightened is that they were once in darkness, but they were called out of darkness by God's effectual call. So part of our remembrance, part of the remembrance for the Hebrews is the recollection that we are reminded that we are enlightened by God's sovereign grace. In other words, when you're facing struggles, you remember that God has sovereignly called you. God has chosen you. God has set you apart for His purposes. That His love was set upon you before the foundations of the world were even laid. That you are called by God, the one who called all things into existence. In other words, you're set apart for His purposes. And in His good providence, you are being refined And yes, being refined oftentimes comes through hardship. So the first thing that we need to recall, that the Hebrews needed to recall, is that they had been enlightened by the sovereign God by His grace, and they were set apart for His purposes. Whenever you face any struggle, you just remember this. The King of all of the universe has set you aside for His purposes. He goes on to say that through this refining process is that they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And this is actually a wonderful testimony of their enduring faith because they were not ashamed of Christ. They were not ashamed of Christ and as a result of not being ashamed of Christ, the result of that was persecution. How so? Well, because their identification with the church of Christ, their identification of being Christians in a society that did not like Christians, they weren't afraid to be Christians in such a society. And that is what brought them public exposure to reproach and affliction. And you think about that idea of public exposure to reproach. I think public scorn is probably one of the things that that Christians fear Worse and, and fear the idea of having to face being publicly embarrassed. I, I think that's even worse, maybe in some senses, than physical suffering. Why is it that speaking in front of people in public is one of the greatest fears that people have? Is because they don't want to get up and do what? Embarrass themselves. In fact, I think that this is one of the things that would probably drive them, the idea of publicly being scorned in front of their neighbors that would lead them to question, is this worth it? The psalmist captures this in Psalm 69, verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. That's a speaking of the idea of of public scorn and, and public reproachment and not being in society's eyes above reproach. Now there's something we have to think through here is there's there's somewhat of a dichotomy. And what do I mean by that? The Christian life is to be a life that's lived above reproach. In fact, that's a qualification of an elder, isn't it? We are called to live above reproach. The, the, the thing is about that is it being a qualification for elders, it's actually for all Christians to live above reproach. But yet we're seeing here that the Hebrews were exposed. So, so, so how do we live above reproach? But yet living above reproach is what led them to being 
publicly exposed to reproach. Think about that for a second. It was their faithful living that actually got them marked as being evil. Do you think that if you quoted certain Bible passages in certain sectors of California, that that would be considered wicked and evil, though it's God's word? So you can kind of get an idea. Being faithful to live a life above reproach actually can lead you to public scorn. It's no different for, for them. So how do, we, how do we live in this? Well, Peter gives us this instruction that's very helpful. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, you have to walk with integrity, even though knowing that you could be marked as actually evil. Peter goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, he's speaking of a society that has marked Christians off as actually being evil for what they believe. He says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And when we look at that word above reproach, as Paul lays it out to Timothy as one of the qualifications of an elder, it means this, is nothing in a court of law could actually stick to you. Nothing could actually be, be attached to you as being true in a court of law. And so what does it mean to live above reproach, it means that we walk honorably, but living above reproach will necessarily, in a society that rejects Christ and His Word, will lead you to the public exposure of reproach and affliction. You know, the Proverbs tell us that a good name is to be chosen over great riches, right? And so we want to have a good name in society. Yet we should not put such a high value upon our name and ourselves that it would lead us to the place of denying Christ publicly when it's inconvenient or convenient to do so. You think about that. It would be really easy to remain silent and not have to bear what comes with that rather than speak of who Christ is to us. How do we face that? Very simply, think of him who will never reject those for whom he died. Christ will never reject his own, so may we never reject him. And let that be our motivation, that he who will never reject us be one that we call upon always, even when it's not convenient. Not only did they get publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, they dealt with this public scorn, but we're told here that they're actually unafraid to be associated with those that had been treated poorly and were cast off in society. So in other words, they were truly good Samaritans. They were good Samaritans. They do not avoid contact with their brothers, but rather they go out of their way to help them, even if rejected by society, and that by being associated with different people would lead to others rejection, rejecting you. And actually, what they're doing in this is they're simply following Jesus' words. And Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-five thirty-six: I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
He goes on to say, for the, whatever you do for one of the least of these my brothers. So he's speaking of our treatment to the church. That we treat those that are of the church, that are of Christ. We're not afraid to be associated with them. Because there's what it says in verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison. So they were not afraid to be with those that society had deemed as being evil. You know, in the, in the first century, prisoners were dependent upon outside support for sustenance and for their, their basic necessities. It wasn't like a, a prison here in California where you get your, your meals, you get exercise time, and you, you get a TV, and you get all sorts of amenities, sometimes more comfortable than a Hotel 6. You get all of these things if you're in a prison today. It wasn't like that. Actually, you had to have outside support to be able to survive. And they were scorned by society. In some sense, it seems like almost a badge of honor today. It wasn't then. And so what did these Christians do when they saw that their brothers and sisters were imprisoned for whatever reason, for their faith, or for some other reason they, they weren't worried about the social scorn. They weren't worried about the stigma that was placed on those in prisons. They, they were not afraid to help their fellow brothers and sisters. In other words, those that were suffering, those that were the outcast because of their faith, they showed solidarity with them. I think we're beginning to get like a little bit of a glimpse of the persecution that they faced. Not only did they have these struggles and were publicly mocked, we can somewhat relate to being publicly mocked, but they were also being thrown in prison. And we're not told the exact nature of why and how that unfolded. In fact, we're not even sure exactly where this church was located to be able to do a proper historical analysis of what was taking place. All we're told here is that they faced these things, that there was people in prison, that they faced struggling, But most inexplicably, not only did they face that public scorn, but look what it else says. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How many of you filed your income taxes joyfully? Let me read it again. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, it's not that they they loved having their property stolen or that they even liked the fact that their property was being stolen from them because they, they would not like sin. They weren't unaffected stoics. It means that they faced it with joy. Now, just to be clear, this plundering is seizure through the threat of violence. It's taking something by force. And it seems to be sanctioned somehow in a, in a way that this wasn't just petty theft that they were experiencing, but rather that it was something that was sanctioned by a higher authority 
and it seems to be systematized that their property was taken from them. And how did they face it? Well, they faced it with joy. Now, you might be thinking, hold on, they didn't have a concept of property rights and personal property and the right to private property like we do, because we know that we highly value private property. Our Fifth Amendment says this, that we are not to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. That's in that's inbred into our very fabric of our society, that idea of private property. Property, and so we we might be tempted to think, well, they don't, they didn't have an enlightened view of private property like we do, and so it was easier for them to face it than it would be for us. But we would be dead wrong if we thought that. This is written to Hebrews. This is written to Jewish people that had the eighth commandment, which is, "Thou shalt not steal." It was ingrained by God's moral law. In fact, they had it as written by God's own finger as their law, the enshrining of private property. It's even revealed by natural light to the human heart. What do I mean by that? All God's image bearers know in their heart that it is wrong to steal. It's God's moral law that's revealed. And there's something else we should happen to note about Israel. To my knowledge, there's no example of anyone in ancient Israel ever selling their land. The, the example of an offer to buy land in Israel and if you're, if you're on our Wednesday nights, you know this example. It's when Ahab seeks to buy Naboth's property because he wants a vineyard for his garden. And Naboth refuses to sell it because it would be unthinkable to give up his private property that God had given him by inheritance. And so it's unthinkable that he would give his land. Now, if we had an opportunity to make money on land, we might take that. But in the mind of, the, of, of, of Israel, that is absolutely unthinkable. And it cost Naboth his life. And so why am I saying this? It's because this private property was just as much treasured by these Hebrews as it is for us today. They valued private property because God gives us the right of private property by saying, you shan't count, shall not steal, which means that we actually are able to have things in our possession that God has given us that we're able to have. They face this joyfully. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have the right to protect your private property. I'm not saying that you don't have the right to defend your private property. I'm simply showing us what God tells us that these Hebrews did, is that when they faced the plundering of their property by governmental forces, they faced it with joy. They, they, they viewed what they had as being from God. 
Just like Naboth viewed his vineyard as being from God and he was to be a good steward of it. And so, you might think of it theologically this way. If God is sovereign over what you have, he's also sovereign over what's taken from you. And so how did they respond? How did they respond to these hard struggles that have been outlined? Well, we see, we've seen already compassion. We see that it was with acceptance of the circumstances, and that the accompanying the acceptance of the circumstances was with joy. And just for a second, think about compassion. While they themselves experienced struggles... They sympathized with others. What's the temptation to do whenever you're facing struggles yourself is to become very centered upon self. To think only about whatever I'm going through and not think about what possibly my brother or sister is also going through. This is not the case. When he's calling them, think about this. He says, for you had compassion. It's that same word that we see of, of sympathy. This is the example of Christ in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so, as Christ entered into our sufferings to an even a greater extent than we will ever, we are called here to actually show that same sort of sympathy. We're called to partner with them. You'll notice in verse 33, it says, sometimes being partners with those so treated, it's the word koinia that we get our word fellowship or partnership. You became partners in their sufferings. Just as Christ entered into flesh and suffered on behalf of his people. You think of what Paul says very simply in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's easy, but he also calls us to mourn with those that mourn. You think of Paul when he says, I'm so grateful for your partnership to the church of Philippi. He's speaking of not only joy with them, he's speaking of also suffering with them. And we're called to join into the sufferings of Christ. Often that times that comes by joining in with suffering with one another. So they showed compassion and sympathy in the midst of their own struggles, but they also showed an acceptance of circumstances. And how did they show the acceptance of circumstances? It says it joyfully. So why did they accept being plundered? Well, they had greater possessions waiting for them. As the text tells us, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And I think that this is the key to the whole entire text of how they were able to live with these type of struggles. Is He says that you knew that you yourselves had something better, something lasting. And that's by contrast of that which is not lasting. They lived in light of what God had promised them. 
They lived with a a sight of heaven that made the the things of this world uh, pale in comparison, that the things of this world seemed to be almost worthless to the eternal weight of glory that was awaiting them in Christ. Think about how Christ himself describes the kingdom. When he says this, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field in which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Why? Because there was something far greater, something lasting, something that was greater than the things of this world. And so these Hebrews, as they face struggles, as they face public reproach, and as they face the plundering of their property, they're looking ahead with an eternal weight of glory looking at it in their eyes. It seems that this is rarely the emphasis of the Christian life today. Of living before the face of God. It seems like that today the the focus of the Christian life is very, in terms of popular Christian books, if we may be so brave to call them Christian books, where it's all about you. How did this make me feel? When was the last time you read a doctrinal book on the nature of Christ? Sometimes we don't think that that's very appealing, but actually that's what the author is telling us to do. You know, the book, authors write books today that sell lots of copies on how to find our purpose or living a good life now, which rarely ever considers living for God's glory, but rather subtly, or not so subtly, focuses on living for our own glory. Look, if you're living for your own glory, that's not going to get you through the struggles. Because the struggles will crush you if you're living for your glory. If we're living for just how to find fulfillment in this life, when this life becomes hard, it will crush you. Because that's all you have to live for. And if this is all you have to live for, and all of your eggs are in the basket of this life, then it's pretty devastating when this life crushes you. And it will. It's not a matter of if. It, it, it will. We'll all face tragedies. We see tragedies across the, the headline news constantly. No one's unaffected by the realities of life. And if this is all it is, this life will crush you. But look at our great cloud of witnesses. Look at these Hebrews. As they faced incredible circumstances... They they faced it with joy. They faced it with compassion. And the reason is because they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, how did they face tragedies? They faced tragedies in this way. There's something greater than what we have here. So I won't be consumed with what's here and rather will focus on what's lasting. That's how they faced it. 
What a great cloud of witnesses we have in these Hebrews. But you know, it's interesting. I, I'm picking on modern authors and their, their tendency and their penchant to, to write things on what make us feel good, but that's not the history of Christian writing. That's not our, that's not our heritage as Christians. Our heritage as Christians is rich. It's not the drivel that's produced that says, here's how you feel good. Think of Augustine's confessions. He says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Think of Aquinas. He says, The ultimate end of human life is to contemplate God. He says, That's that's our end. Calvin says, If then we wish to bear anything for Christ with patience and resigned minds, let us accustom ourselves to a frequent meditation on that felicity in comparison with which all good things of the world are nothing but refuse. John Owen, I think, captured this thought best. I quote John Owen often. John Owen was perhaps one of the greatest of the Puritans in in terms of sheer volume of his written works and in terms of his intellect. What's interesting about John Owen when he wrote the words I'm about ready to quote to you, he had lived a life, as one biographer says, of failure. What was that? Well, he lost all of his children at this point, had lost his first wife at this point, had experienced speaking before Parliament, before Parliament on a regular basis, and being renowned as a speaker before Parliament. He was the head of Oxford, as the Chancellor of Oxford, to being actually the pastor of a church that was meeting out of his house and under constant surveillance by the king. He was a man that knew pain. Just the fact that he lost all of his children before he himself died and lost his first wife is hard enough, but not only did he have a a bit of prestige, it was all taken from him. And so as he gets to the end of his life and now is a mature theological thinker, what does he tell us? Does he reflect about how we're to live a good life now? No. He points us to Christ and he says this, The soul of a believer is designed for the vision and contemplation of Christ's glory. He lives upon it, and by the views of it is transformed into the same image from glory to glory. In other words, what's Owen telling us to do after he has faced immense hardship? He says, you meditate upon Christ, where you have something lasting and abiding that cannot ever be plundered. That's our heritage, is to focus upon Christ. That's how these, these Hebrews did it. These Hebrews understood what many of our forefathers wrote out and, and taught. 
They understood the words of Christ, where Christ says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That word blessed in the the Beatitudes, it indicates a reality. He's stating something that they are, that is tangible in their life. Jesus was speaking of the Christian. This is what a Christian is. It's describing a truth of the Christian life. What we're reading here, that the apostle is telling these Hebrews to look back upon, is the fruit of their faith. May we never confuse with what faith is with what faith does. We are justified by faith alone. Not by how well we live the Christian life. Faith is the open and empty hand before a merciful Savior. Faith itself is a gift by grace. You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. The instrument of God's grace by which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer, is faith. Sanctification is the process and the progress and the fruit of our union with Christ. As Luther said, we're saved by faith, but faith is never alone. And so the fruit of their faith, after being enlightened, the fruit of their faith is what the Apostle is calling them to reflect upon. He's calling them to look back when Christ had changed their life and how they had endured these difficulties. In other words, there was a tangible manifestation of good works in their life wrought by the Holy Spirit. Look back on those. Not for assurance, but for pushing forward for keeping in the race, for how you keep going in the midst of a society that hates Christians. This is what the Christian life is. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but we are saved for good works. And he's calling them to look back on how God had changed them And he says, you endured through such tremendously difficult struggles, and you focused what you had heavenward. And they did focus on it. Look what he says. He says, you knew this. He says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one, which is that they, they thought about it. They thought about how what they had waiting for them was lasting, it was abiding. They knew the things of this world were merely passing. They were looking forward to things not susceptible to moth or rust or to where thieves can break in. Every time we experience the destruction of things in this life, every time that we have pain in our body, it should be a reminder that what we have in this world is merely passing, but what we have waiting for us is lasting. 
And this moves into where he tells them, don't walk away. God got you through it before. He'll, he'll get you through it again. So this morning, as you face struggle, some of which only you and you alone may know, think of what Paul says in Colossians. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Look what Christ has done in your life. Look how Christ has brought you this far. Look at how Christ bought you with his blood and and he is keeping you. He's, He's brought you to this moment. He who called you will keep you. And so may this morning, may we see the things as they are. And may we see that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places and look heavenward to that which is lasting. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy that you have upon your people. You give us great promises that are incomprehensible. And sometimes it's easy for us in our Christian walk to take our eyes off of the promises or to become discouraged by the things of this world, to become distraught and overcome with anxiety, forgetting of that lasting promise that we have in Christ. And so, Father, may your grace be upon us to always point us to look upon Christ, to look where the Word tells us we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places even now. We need your grace for this, for we cannot do it apart from it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.